Thank you, everybody. It's a treat to be here. I want to warmly welcome you. I have a warm spot in my heart for the John Michael Kohler Art Center, where I've spent many a day in the artery with my kids making art. Um, we're going to talk about aging today. Uh, it's a surprise to none of you, I'm sure. Uh, aging in the United States and Western culture has a little bit of, um, let's see, a conflicted cultural value. Not to any of us in the room, I'm sure. but. Um, all you have to do is read the paper. And in the last week alone, there have been multiple examples um, of how articles on how to look young, how to do facial exercises to look young. That was two days ago, a video on teaching us how to do that. Videos and all over social media about what to wear when you're over 50, what not to wear. And today in the New York Times is how to remove age spots. Thank you, New York Times. If you walk down really any lotion and potion aisle of any pharmacy, you'll feel it. You'll feel that quest to remove the marks of time on the body. What is it that we're afraid of? What is fueling those fears of aging? And what fuels that stigma of aging that leads to the feeling of invisibility that so many older people talk about, of people walking right past them or looking past them? that stigma that contributes to our growing problem with social isolation and loneliness, that disconnection from communities that we, were, that we once knew and were bonded to. If you Google fear of aging and click image, it is fascinating because apparently only women are afraid of aging. <laughs> Don't think that's true, but truly this is the first series of images that come up Apparently, we're afraid of what we see, and we long for what was. Now, there's a theory in psychology called terror management theory, which explains to us that actually inside our lizard brain, the primal part of our brain, we are afraid of mortality. And we associate mortality with aging. So any marks of time on the body, that is why we're afraid of aging. Our lizard brain shuts it out makes us avoid it, makes us want to erase any marks of it and avoid people who have the marks of time on the body. Now, there's a really interesting thing if you go deeper into the terror management research. It turns out that a lot of those researchers used very convenient sample studies um, of people to look at um, and to recruit into their studies. And those were undergraduates. So answering those questions about what you're afraid of at age 19 is going to be a little different than later in life. And it turns out that if you ask older people what they're afraid of, it is meaninglessness. Google fear of meaninglessness, <laughs> hit image, this is exactly what I did. And it turns out only men are afraid of meaninglessness. No, that's not true either. But that's what <laughs> appears. It's very fascinating to do that gender study. But that's another study and another talk another time. Mm -hmm. um, this one is um, older writers, ma male writers, who are writing about um, meaninglessness and how to avoid it. So what this does is take youth off of the holy grail and replaces it with meaning. If you. Um, after 20 years of working in the field of aging, mostly with people with dementia, which is a place where the world imagines that there really is no meaning, 
but where I have found incredible and soul-filling experiences, I have a theory of my own about, how, about what we're afraid of and about how to find meaning. My theory starts with awe, much to the thanks of my friend Susan McFadden, who is, I'm happy is in the audience tonight. And awe for me, believe it or not, starts in 1973. That is the year that my parents took me from Janesville, Wisconsin, on our first road trip out to Colorado, turning the corners in our little green tin Audi Fox around up the, uh, up the Continental Divide and the over the passes. We'd turn a corner and open up to these incredible vistas that I had never seen the likes of before. Truly, the largest hill in Janesville gives you about 30 seconds of sledding pleasure. That's about it. So it wasn't, the, it wasn't the only trip that this happened to, but it was definitely the first one. Um, I ended up going back um, to undergraduate in Colorado Springs. Um, and every time we would go west for a family backpacking trip, any time we'd turn one of those corners, my mom developed this catchphrase, which was, oh, look, a magnificent vista. And it became something that we would always say whenever we saw something that gave you that feeling of, <gasps> it was a magnificent vista, to the point where it's kind of silly, but um, if you ever play Hangman to pass the time, you know, that little game with the word game, the first one in my family is always magnificent vista, and then we laugh, and then we do the next one. It's like, pretty funny. Um, I realize now that that phrase, magnificent vista, is really emerges out of a sense of awe. What is awe? Actually, I want you, this is a little interactive part of the talk today. Most places want to tell you to put your phones away. I'm going to ask you to take it out, if you don't mind. Um, so the first thing I'd like you to do is ask, text somebody you know really well. Um, anyone, that's anyone you want. <laughs> Someone you know really well. And I want you to ask them, what gives you a feeling of awe and wonder? They might think you're strange. They might text back and go, what? Or who is this? <laughs> but just text them that. And then put it on vibrate. <laughs> we'll make the MPTV people happy by making sure you put it on vibrate. And then in the course, you might get a response in the course of it. And um, we'll come back to this at the very end. And I'll ask you if you got some answers at the very end. And then we'll go up to the mics to share what we got. So awe, what actually is it? It is an emotional response to perceptually vast stimuli that transcend current frames of reference. So that has two parts. The first part is vast stimuli, so the magnificent vista. <laughs> that stuns you because it's so big. Something is very big um, in, in its meaning or its size or something. Um, the second part is that it makes you rethink what you think, how you understand the world. So vastness, rethinking how you understand the world. This next quote actually comes from um, a book I'm kind of obsessed with called The Neurophenomenology of Awe and Wonder. Um, that just lets you know I'm kind of a nerd. Um, so this one says, a direct and initial experience or feeling 
when faced with something amazing, incomprehensible, or sublime. And the people who actually know philosophy, sublime will be very meaningful as well. So this is linked to wonder. Wonder is a little different. Some people kind of overlap the two of them. And instead, I separate them into two separate things. And this is how they're different. In the actual dictionary definition, you might not sense the difference very much. A feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. Um, or as a verb, it gets closer, desire or be, to be curious about something, to know something. Now, back to my, the book I'm obsessed with, Neurophenomenology of Awe and Wonder. A reflective experience motivated when one is unable to put things into a familiar conceptual framework, awe, leading to open questions rather than conclusions. That is the magical difference. Awe triggers it, and wonder sets you on your way to learning. I'm going to try to figure this out with open questions. I'm going to keep going and learning and growing. So the neurophenomenology of awe and wonder, one of the things it really talks about is the whole thing is based on interviews with astronauts. See, you guys are going to run out to the bookstores and get this book right away. I know you are. Um, they talk about what's called the overview effect. And one of, the, um, one of the interviews I just captured to share with you tonight is from an astronaut named Ron Garan. When we look down at the Earth from space, we see this amazing indescribably beautiful planet. It looks like a living, breathing organism. But it also, at the same time, looks extremely fragile. So that idea that you see this world that you live in in, a, in, its, in something vast, but then it also causes you to rethink um, how you understand it. I realize now I live across from Lake Michigan, and for about the past five years, I've been taking a picture of Lake Michigan every day if I can. This is actually one of my pictures. Um, and I didn't know until I started researching awe and wonder what really drew me to it. I think it's my daily kind of meditative practice to get that hit of awe in my life, to put things in priority, um, to challenge me with that sense of wonder and vastness. Turns out there's three ways that you can access that feeling of awe. So there's three magic entry points. One actually is nature, like the pictures of Lake Michigan. Um, one is creativity. Um, this slide I use because it is um, both creativity and the third doorway into awe, which is spirituality. Um, this is the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir. Um, with uh, thanks to Matt Beardsley for the picture, um, which gives you that sense of something vast in the, the artistic product that comes out of joined voices and makes you rethink who you are as a member of this beautiful thing um, that you could, you could never create by yourself, but you can create with others. In my 20 years of working with people with dementia, I also have experienced awe in human connection, just simple human connection, bridging understanding, reaching another person, and the vastness and beauty of another human soul. What is its impact on us, whether it's an overview effect from an astronaut 
or whether it's the simple human connection with another human soul. There is lots of research out there now, actually, that tells us that even small doses of awe in our lives yield a boost in life satisfaction. It inspires us to do good to others. It expands our sense of time and changes decision-making and improves well-being. You can tell these studies are all like 2015, 2012. This is an emerging, rising field, and I love it. It turns out that one of the things that awe triggers is a sense of humility. And this is really recent work from 2017. And humility itself, the feeling of humility, is associated with better social relationships, increased altruism, back to that one where it says it, it inspires us to be good to others, greater well-being, and resilience, which is all important in, as we age and we meet more physical or social challenges. It helps us bounce back. Humility facilitates social integration. So meaningfulness. I like to think of meaningfulness as having two hands. One is the subjective hand. I'm happy. I love what I'm doing. It is meaningful to me. And the other hand is this objective side that says what I'm doing has a purpose in the larger world and that the larger community recognizes that it has value. And meaningfulness is really two hands put together. Now here, now I spent a lot of time on this. You guys will need to go over this, and there will be a test <laughs> afterwards. This is like, how do I make sense of all this awe, wonder, humility, meaning research? And this is the magic drawing. So it starts with that trigger of awe. And then it goes into two, the two pathways of the subjective and the objective. On the, on the one part, it triggers that sense of, yearning to learn of openness and curiosity and growth. And, and that yields also the individual pleasure in the moment. And the other one, you're experiencing, your awe is triggering that sense of humility where you're developing more social relationships through social integration, a sense of belonging, a sense of greater purpose in that larger group that you're uh, integrating into. And so both paths are leading you into that sense of meaningfulness in life. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? <laughs> all right, so I've come to see all of my work now in the arts, in creativity, that door into the, cre that creative door into sparking the feeling of awe as facilitating, uh, uh, creative engagement facilitating experiences of awe that lead, a, lead us to meaningfulness in our lives. And there are, really these five simple mechanisms um, that I have found over 20 years of doing this work that allow you to facilitate both your own pathway in and then also simultaneously inviting someone else into that moment of awe. The first one is super simple and it's the core of improvisation and you probably all know it, which is yes and. So an example of yes and is simply that you embrace what's given to you in the moment, and you add to it in a positive way. You don't, if anyone has ever done comedy of improv, this is the core basis of it. Um, if someone gives you a prompt, you don't undercut it um, for the next person to respond to, you add to it in a positive way. So an example would be, all of a sudden, a giant gorilla drops down from the ceiling. What would you do? Anybody wanna like throw an answer out there? <laughs> My own, of course, but. You feed them, what would you feed them? 
banana. A banana. So you feed him a banana. That is a yes and. The giant gorilla drops down, you feed him a banana. That's perfect. That is exactly the illustration of yes and. The second one is beautiful questions. And some people talk about um, open questions. I like beautiful, just slightly more poetic version of it. Um, it's really, again, triggering that pathway of wonder and curiosity. Really, the magical thing there is it's not a yes or a no. It is opening up a shared path of discovery. Um, a, a, a beautiful question, an example of that is, and then I'll go back here. Um, I did a project in Milwaukee in um, 2012 to 2014 where we worked with um, Meals on Wheels. And we delivered um, questions, beautiful questions, out with the meals as a little bit of extra piece of nutrition. Um, this is just one of those questions that went out to them. What gift would you like to give to the next generation? They could call in their answers, or they could handwrite their responses and give them back to the drivers. And we got over 2,500, I think, responses to the whole thing, which we then turned into a big art exhibit in the city hall in Milwaukee. Um, here's just, it's hard to read, so I'll read it for you. Um, this was one of the answers in beautiful script, which is hard to find anymore. Um, what gift would you give to the next generation? Love, kindness, having respect for others, keeping a good attitude, and then she wrote smile, and then put a smiley sticker on it for emphasis. <laughs> um, oh, let me go back to the other ones here. Um, the third one is proof of listening. When you're inviting someone into expression and creative engagement, you want to let them know they've been heard and understood. Um, some people will call it authentic listening or active listening. But I like proof because it really shows the person that, that they have been heard and they, it confirms that they've been heard. And you can do that through eye contact, through repeating someone's answer, through writing down someone's answer, changing your behavior to acknowledge what they've said to you. Um, there's all kinds of different ways to show proof of listening. The fourth one is rigor and value. And that is the magic of the artist. Um, we have a special ability to create and present things in a way that shows, that increases the value and the cultural value of them just by sprinkling a little fairy dust on it or framing it really beautifully. <laughs> it's, it suddenly becomes something bigger than what it was. Um, and that artist doesn't have to be an outside person. It can be you taking on the role of the artist, of making it, um, transforming it into something that has social value within your community. The final one is connection. And that goes back to kind of the, um, uh, the objective component of meaningfulness. You use creative engagement to connect to each other, but you also use it to connect to something bigger in the larger, broader world. Um, I'm going to give you a bunch of examples of these five elements because I know it's a lot to hold in your head. So the really beautiful thing about those elements is, and facilitating moments of awe through creative engagement is that you can do it as an individual, you can do it with a group of people, or you can do it in a larger community. It, all of those techniques are the same um, in that way. And those elements are really what I've come to call creative care. Um, and in my work in the last 
five years, we've really evolved into using creative engagement to do the magic of social integration and community building, um, creative engagement techniques, but also creative community building. And this is an image here of one of um, our incredible master trainers, Elaine Molly, working at St. Anne's Intergenerational Center on the Bucyrus campus in Milwaukee, uh, which integrates, brings people with profound disabilities together to create stories with movement and sound and just the laughter. I was just at a session on Monday and the laughter that rings out in this room is phenomenal. So here is an example of what I mean about how to use the arts to enchant an everyday task. So I'm helped on this by a really dear high school friend of mine who happens to now be an artist and also a, um, I'm not sure of her title, but I know she's a curator at the Madison Children's Museum, uh, Brenda Baker. Um, so an everyday task that actually in aging care communities now is pretty common to invite elders with memory loss to help fold the laundry. Um, it's a comforting task. It's um, something that is reminiscent of what they would do at home, and it's, use, it's being of use in their community. Now, Brenda did a project up in, um, for the Worm Farm Institute up in um, Sauk County, where they um, actually invited residents from the area to bring um, laundry, old pieces of, of cloth, and together they um, folded it, they dyed it, they built giant clotheslines, and then they put them out in a field and created a beautiful art exhibit. Vastness. <laughs> Creativity is the doorway to awe. And here's just a few of the folks who helped her with that project. Looks like it was fun, doesn't it? <laughs> here's another example from uh, the country of Ireland, um, which is called, it's the Bialtina Festival. So every May, there is um, the Bialtina Festival. Bialtina means May. And it's a celebration, the festival is a celebration of creativity as we age. So it's specifically about nurturing and sharing the creative expression of older adults across Ireland. Um, and it does a lot of that community building component. This particular um, activity or event is called um, the Dawn Chorus. So Dawn Chorus is another, is a euphemism for the birds that wake you up at about 4.30 in the morning, um, if that's ever happened to you, particularly in the summertime. Um, and they have groups all across Ireland who join a dawn chorus, and they literally get together one day um, where all the groups all across Ireland are singing at dawn. Um, Dominic Campbell, who directed that festival for many years, told me that um, the, this picture actually was the year that there were 3,000 people participating in the dawn chorus all across, in different <coughs> choir groups all across Ireland. Um, you can see that dawn light on there. <laughs> but they look happy to be there, don't they? This is another project that I did in 2014. Um, it was called The Crossings. It actually emerged out of the Islands of Milwaukee project where we sent out um, the, the questions, the beautiful questions with the, the home-delivered meals. One of the things we noticed um, when we were doing ride-alongs with the drivers was that some of those um, people we were delivering meals to lived directly across the street from um, grocery stores or restaurants, um, but they, there was really no way that they could get out to get the food themselves. Um, the traffic 
I mean, I didn't want to cross the street, right? Um, let alone someone with uh, walking a little bit slower or with a walker or with some disability. Um, and so we thought, goodness, we have uh, so geared our communities to the cars that um, we've had to invent this whole system of delivering meals to people who can no longer cross the street to get food for themselves. Um, huh, <laughs> makes you think. So we, devi we devised this project to try to figure out, with the elders' help, could we create a performance that could help teach drivers to see and stop for pedestrians? So that we could maybe, if we got it to scale and turned it into something that was continued and developed, that we could push back against that culture that prioritizes cars, that we could um, reclaim pedestrianship for older people, right? Um, and so we started with a question of the day that was simply, is there an intersection you would like to cross on foot but feel it's too dangerous? Um, and we got hundreds and hundreds of answers back. And we, gave, we put all that data on a map and we gave it to the mayor because we thought, this is data of longing. This, it's not crash data. It's not where there's more crashes. It's where people have given up hope of ever trying to cross. So it was really a beautiful um, way to use uh, the responses of the elders themselves and their own creative responses in order to help change the culture that they're living in, that connection to something bigger than themselves, to let people know they're participating in something meaningful and broader. Um, what we ended up doing was creating, picking three intersections, one in Milwaukee, one in Cudahy, one in St. Francis, and um, doing performances, inviting the elders and inviting civic officials to cross with us, with the professional performers and then the students from my theater department. And our um, narrative was very simple. When the guardrails go down in Milwaukee and the alarms go off, the cars just have to stop because you can't like speed through if the bridge is going to go up. Right, you just have to stop. <laughs> then the bridge goes up, and then the boat goes through, and then the bridge comes down, and then the guardrails go up. And that is exactly our performance. We had a ship captain with a very cheesy hat on and a, uh, a megaphone, and he was playing sea shanties, and we wanted it to be the most fun anybody had had crossing the street ever, and I think we actually succeeded. Um, here you can see a little bit of it. These signs we made were super um, important. Um, thank you for seeing and stopping for pedestrians, because when you could feel the car, the driver starting to freak out, you just like move your sign a little bit, and that would help a lot. Um, you can see our alarms were triangles. Um, and then this is actually my favorite part of the whole thing. At the intersection in Cudahy, the mayor um, of Cudahy, the gentleman here, and Nancy were both lined up to cross, and neither could make it across in time. The light was too short. And the mayor was horrified. There, are, there were at least five senior apartment buildings around this intersection, um, like 100 yards away. And every single senior apartment building had a van to take the elders to the grocery store on the corner because they couldn't cross that intersection. So the next week, you can see they were chummy here. The next week, those lights were lengthened. Um, it didn't take very much to get that change made once we had the mayor crossing with us. <laughs> and the city engineer. He brought the city engineer with him, too. I was really happy for that. So um, 
This is a project that is still dear to my heart. Um, happened in um, from 2009 to 2011. We collaborated with Luther Manor, which is in Wauwatosa. Um, it is a, a village unto itself. 700 people live there. 700 people work there on various shifts. It's a million square feet. Um, independent living, assisted living, skilled nursing, and adult day. A, a huge community. And we thought, what if we did a common project there? Um, people in independent living tended never to go visit friends in the nursing home. There's, in case you don't know, there is a Grand Canyon between independent living <laughs> and nursing homes. It's very, that stigma of disability and the fear of it is so pronounced that you can lose long, lifelong friendships in that way just by a fear of crossing over and seeing and, and maintaining those friendships. So we thought, what could we do to, to have the whole community collaborate, the staff collaborate uh, as equals, the family to do something so interesting that the family would want to come in and do it with us? Um, because otherwise, activities in care settings tend to be specifically designed for the elder. N people never assume that they would want to go and do it with them. But what if it was art making so interesting that people wanted to. Families could do it together. Um, and also neighbors and volunteers could participate as well. We also worked with a professional theater company, Sojourn Theater, and then um, my theater students participated as well. What you see here is a session. What we did, actually, was retell the story of Homer's Odyssey um, over two years uh, from the perspective of Penelope, who was the hero who never left home. And um, we thought if we could rewrite the story of the hero from Odysseus to Penelope, the one who maintains a sense of home, raises the son that they shared, keeps a sense of home for 20 years, and then is, is smart enough to fight off the suitors, 108 of them, who try to take over and make her remarry someone, boy, the inner strength we could see in the people who live in the home um, would be reflected in that revision of the story of Penelope. Here you see um, uh, a volunteer, Joelle, um, Jolene Hansen, who ran a bunch of the creative sessions. And in this one, she's working in the Adult Day Center, asking people, how do you think, if, what, would, what letter would they write between each other if uh, Penelope could write to Odysseus and Odysseus could write to Penelope? And they wrote letters beautifully. And then she asked, how would they get there? And they said, well, by bird, of course. And then they made origami birds out of the letters that they had written and created a beautiful display of the origami birds and the letters. There was so much creativity and artwork coming out of the Penelope Project that they took, the staff took over a room in independent living, called it literally Penelope's Room, and all of the work um, that came out of it was exhibited inside, and it became kind of a pop-up art gallery that residents from any area or family members could um, take residence and, and, and their family members to on the weekends when they visited. Um, Any time, it was always open. We, we were, the rigor of this project was very high. We collaborated with a classics professor from UWM, Andrew Porter, who um, very boldly taught ancient Greek to everyone. <laughs> this is actually one of my favorite uh, scenes. There's a documentary um, by 371 Productions that um, it uh, tells the story, and here he is um, teaching about 300 people, alpha, beta, gamma, it's, it's, it's lovely. 
We also made a mile-long weaving. Penelope was a weaver. Um, and talk about taking on an impossible task. Could we make a weaving a mile long, which ended up being the core, it would mark the course that the play, we created an original play, would be staged through the care community and the audience could follow us through it. Um, and it, we never knew really until a week before whether we could get enough weaving. But everyone, people took take home bags, the students, the staff, the residents, people who had insomnia were like, I'm weaving all night. <laughs> it was great. Um, and we started to see that community forming. Um, this is actually Joyce Hendrick, who, who was a performer in our play and lives in independent living, seeing one of her friends in assisted living that she hadn't seen for quite a while during an actual run through of the play. The people in the background you see there are our students, um, the stage manager and assistant stage manager dressed um, as staff. We staged one of the scenes in the nursing home um, because we really believe that to make this successful, we wanted everyone to be able to participate as equals. People with memory loss, people with physical disabilities, people without. Family members genuinely came to these creative workshops and rehearsals in the nursing home and participated together. And it gave us the idea that in the final scene of the Penelope play, we wanted to have Penelope played by anyone who wanted to. So it was an open chorus. Uh, that is a thing for an artist to really have to lean in and trust, which is that when you open the curtain uh, for your great final scene, there will actually be people on the stage. And there was, I'm happy to say. And that's a view of the audience from the, the, um, the chorus's perspective. And here is a little tiny clip um, of the piece itself that just gives you a little bit of an overview of the making of it, um, and particularly the creation of the welcome dance that the chorus did at the very end. Is it is the lock on? Oh, there we go. Arnie, you didn't. You didn't tell me her lock was on. We were, we were going to go for a roller coaster ride otherwise. You know, the story is all about Penelope. We're looking for Penelope. We go through all through the building to find her. And when we finally find her at the end, there's not one Penelope, there's a hundred. So that's what we find on the other end that actually we've been looking for Penelope. But there's a Penelope story in everyone, that everyone is weighted, everyone has love, everyone has a story of, of being a hero in your own life. My eyes, they sparkle like stars. Stars. I'm calling you. I'm calling, calling you. I am seeing you. Your eyes, my beloved, sparkle like the stars. You are the ones that make this place home. If the gods will grant us a happier old age, a happier old age, we'll be free from our trials at last. Will be free from our trials at last. If the gods will 
grant us a happier old age, we'll be free from our trials at last. It just gives you a little sense of the power of the piece. <laughs> And we did, we did a lot of research. I won't read these here. and They're too hard for you to read in the back. But um, we did a lot of interviewing um, with residents, family members, audience members, staff, the students. We did a lot of pre and post surveys. One of my favorite um, snippets that came out from an interview from a resident of the nursing home was, what did you think of Penelope? well, you know, it's the last important thing I'm going to do. And it gives you a sense of how dare we not create these opportunities for people to be involved in something really big and meaningful and collaborative with a larger community. So we even got bigger after that. <laughs> last year, we trained 50 nursing homes across the state of Wisconsin in our creative community of care approach. The blue dots you see here on the map are all of the nursing homes across the state that we trained. And the kind of uh, maroony colored dots are the cultural institutions that we collaborated with. We got prompts from those cultural institutions, from the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, from the National Historic Cheese Making Center, from the Circus World Museum. We'll get the John Michael Kohler Art Center next time. We did uh, the Madison Children's Museum the Museum of Wisconsin Art, and the Maritime Preservation Program. We wanted a real diversity in geography and in content so that people could attach where they felt interest. Um, we invited people to do creative storytelling, which is our traditional approach, or creative conversations, or then these longer range projects. Um, and then together, we picked, we collaborated with some artists, and we picked stories from across the state. And then we invited elders to choreograph those stories. We invited them to read them aloud. And then we um, created, worked with an animator to create a beautiful rendering of um, kind of a karaoke version of the story itself. So this is the image that the story was based on. And I'm just going to play a little bit of this clip from the story itself so you can see it. Let's start at the top. Starting at the top. This story was created on January 12, 19. 17 by Betty, Dale, Dar Darlene, Dorothy, Ed, Janet, Judy, Mel, Mildred, and Vi at Mulder Health Care Center. It is fall in downtown Milwaukee. Two, two men are entertaining a group, a bar group at night. One guy is on the drums, one guy is on the saxophone. They are inside a tavern with glass behind them. Drums were this The drummer has a cymbal and a hitting bell. He is wearing beads and has long hair. Anybody else? You can go keep going no? if you want. Are you tired? No. Okay. The guy on the on the sax is really enjoying playing. He sure looks good. Drunkards are making noise. Oh my! Glasses <laughs> clean. People dancing around in the music. Hands clapping. The guy says to the bartender, "Set him up again, Joe." 
The drummer's name is Harry, and the sax player's name is Johnny. Harry and Johnny are sweethearts or just good friends. Or just good friends, she says. Their wives are always at home with the kids while they're playing. They are just about done before leaving to go home. They don't know how long they have been playing because they have been in the tavern too long. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The song playing is Good Night, Irene, soon to be followed by Show Me the Way to Go Home. <laughs> then Yona will say, everybody out. Everybody out. <laughs> then we do a whole piece where we taught the audience at the State Alzheimer's Association Conference how to do the choreography. We also taught them the choreographic method themselves so they could go home and do it. Part of something much bigger, a statewide conference installation, performance, animation that was funded by the NEA Artworks. So what's next? I'm about to, we, well, we actually just kicked it off last two weeks ago. We're training 12 nursing homes in rural Kentucky. We're using the prompt um, six themes from the story of Peter Pan. And in the spring of 2019, that will emerge into three creative festivals in the three different regions we've picked. Um, collaborations with um, artists, regional and national artists, um, students from nearby colleges and high schools, um, and uh, families and volunteers from the community as well as the staff and the residents of the nursing homes. My own moment of awe now is shifted since my mom was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment over the summer. And um, I now appreciate a good magnificent vista but I really am also in awe of her. And I asked her, I'll try to get through this. <laughs> I asked her, what makes you feel awe? And she said, awe comes when something wonderful or unexpected comes to a person. It could be when you are seeing your newborn baby or grandchild, seeing how tall Ben, who's my older son, became last year. It's true, he just like 6'2". How kind someone is to you, and takes care of you like dad does for me. It could be during a spectacular event in nature, like a beautiful sunrise or sunset, or seeing the beauty of the Catalina Mountains when I get up in the morning. I was in awe of Henry, who's my nephew, when I saw his routine for Hamilton, and Will, who's my younger son, when he smiles when he sees you. I can even be in awe of finding a perfect jacket or dress like my new red one. <laughs> I find the creation of awe to really now be um, a, f a fully embracing life's work, to not only feel it for myself, um, but also to invite others to experience it. Uh, thank you.